You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Well, good evening. It's a privilege to be with you and spend time in God's precious word. Sherry, my wife, and I counted a great honor to be with you as a church family tonight. The Wheelers Rig Baptist Church family appreciates you and what God's doing through your ministry and I know some of you from different ways uh, our biblical counseling training some of you've been through that and just if you're interested our next course will be coming up in January a fundamentals track and then this year particularly excited we're going to do an advanced track on dealing with addictions from a biblical standpoint so if you're interested in that we can talk about that later. Uh, we appreciate Pastor David and Autumn and certainly thankful for the blessing of Piper into their lives. And uh, um, Pastor David contacted me several weeks ago and asked if I'd be interested and willing to come and speak tonight. And I was certainly excited about that opportunity. He uh, asked if I'd be willing to speak on the subject of unconditional election or one of the doctrines of grace. and unconditional election is the one that I'll be addressing tonight and I have to confess to you I don't have a subject on unconditional election I you need to know this about me I love I've been pastor since 1987 at Wheelersburg Baptist and we love preaching expository messages through the books of the Bible doing topical studies at time but I don't know if you've ever thought this thought, but when God gave us the Bible, he didn't, it's not like an encyclopedia where you can look in the uh, table of contents and say, here's a teaching on election, or here's a, it's a story, it's a redemption story, and it's filled with books and letters. So it's a great honor tonight to address the subject of unconditional election, but to do so the way the Bible does so, by going to a passage and seeing how this passage unfolds this in the context of an evangelistic theme. Uh, take your Bibles, if you would, and go with me to John chapter 6. And, of course, we're looking at the, the teachings of Jesus here in John 6. And uh, if you're a note taker, you might uh, just jot down. I've titled this message, Before You Raise Your Hand. Uh, if you're not a note taker, that's fine. You can go to our website, wheelersrigbaptist.com, and you'll be able to check out. I, everything that I ever teach is transcripted as well as the audio, and you can read it later. In fact, we're going to cover a lot of ground here, and I encourage you to not get lost in the details. I want you to be overwhelmed with the greatness of God and the wonder of this reality about him that he's chosen to people for his glory. Um, I want to begin with a, a true story. Several years ago, a man came to uh, see me and said, I want to be saved. Well, that's a great thing on a afternoon for someone to come into the church I want to be saved and uh, the man told me his marriage was in crisis he had come to see me for help he was very responsive to what I had to share in fact too responsive if you know what I mean as I opened the scriptures to explain what it meant to be saved I could feel the the man's impatience rising he seemed distracted he seemed not really interested in what I was saying just what he was hoping he could do that day in my office. He was really anticipating the praying the sinner's prayer portion of the conversation. So when I asked, do you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? He said, yes, and he bowed his head and he started praying. 
following the amen, I explain, you know, once a person receives Christ as his Savior, you enter into the family of God as a baby, and as with all babies, you have to grow up, and you're going to need some help growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're going to need some help growing to become strong as a follower of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I said, are you interested in looking into God's Word to find out more about what it has to say about your walk in Christ? And his response was, uh, no, not right now. I got to go. <laughs> I said, well, this is really important. Why do you have to? No, no, I, I got to go. <laughs> I need to get to an appointment. I said, well, what appointment? He said, I'm supposed to be at the courthouse for my divorce hearing in less than an hour. <laughs> and then I began to understand. This man wasn't really interested in what the judge of the universe has to say about his life because he was more interested in pleasing an earthly judge, the one who was going to decide about his alimony payments and the custody of his kids. And I began to see what was going on with this urgency of, quote, getting saved and what it was all about, really just pleasing a judge in Portsmouth to show how worthy he was, no matter what his soon-to-be ex might be saying about him. Not surprisingly, he never came back for follow-up. How do you help a person who says they're interested in Jesus, that says they really want Jesus in their life? You know, some would say, well, you show them how to get saved, and then you urge them to get baptized and join the church, and you do it now because now's the time to bring in the harvest while they're interested. Unfortunately, I have to confess to you that that's the way that I handled many, many people like this in my ministry early on. I say unfortunately because that's not the way at all Jesus handled people like this. Did you ever notice how many times Jesus sent seekers home? Jesus didn't seem to be overly impressed when a sinner raised their hand and said, I'm really interested in you. Remember the rich young ruler? By the time Jesus was finished with that man, he was walking away sorrowful. Then there was the crowd of 5,000 plus that enjoyed the loaves and the fish. They wanted to make Jesus their king. They were ready to make Jesus Christ their king. And by the time he's done with them, they're ready to kill him. Jesus, the master evangelist, is so different from the way we often think about evangelism, the way we do evangelism. Now, please don't misunderstand. Jesus made it clear that he came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. Jesus gave clear invitations like, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus never turned away a weary soul that was coming to him for rest. And you might be here tonight in that situation. My soul is weary. And I would say, do you come to Jesus? He will not cast you aside. But what about sinners who came to Jesus not for rest for their souls, but for something else? Now that's a different story. That's precisely what we find when we turn to John chapter 6. This is the account of the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus leaves the multitude, and the crowd follows him across the lake and tracks him down in the synagogue in Capernaum. I mean, these folks were serious. They want Jesus. But how does he handle their apparent interest in him? Basically, he put on the brakes... And he made them think about three deficiencies in their lives. And by the time he's done with this sermon, they will be grumbling at him, and most will leave him, at least for now, because this isn't the end of the story. Compare that with what happens today in the typical church. 
When the hand goes up, the sinner is brought to Jesus. Just pray this prayer, says the preacher, and you're in the family of God on your way to heaven. And everyone rejoices for a while until the new recruit stops coming to church. Backslidden, says the preacher. Boring, says the disinterested church member. It's so commonplace, we don't even stop to think that our unbiblical methods are at the root of this problem until we take an honest look at the way the master himself handled such people. When interested sinners came to him, he loved them enough to help them face three errors that we need to think about tonight that often plague the quick responder. This is what we see Jesus doing in John 6, in verses 28 to 40. Now, I want to just touch on the first two errors, which are, first of all, the correct Jesus corrects the sinner's faulty view of his ability in verses 28 and 29, and the sinner's faulty view of his need in verses 30 to 33, because I want us to see particularly the third thing Jesus addresses, and it relates to the subject that we're talking about tonight, God's amazing unconditional election. Point one, Jesus corrected the sinner's faulty view of his ability. Verse 28, then they, the crowd of seekers, asked him, what must we do to do the work that God requires? There's the sinner's perspective. He thinks that he can work his way to God. Jesus, however, made it clear he needs God to do a work for him. In verse 29, the Savior responded, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. This is what the sinner must do, not work, but believe. And to do this, he must lack, admit he lacks the ability to do anything that would merit God's favor. And then Jesus secondly corrects the sinner's faulty view of his need. Verse 30, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? So the sinner thinks he needs a sign. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom, says 1 Corinthians 1.22. But Jesus didn't give this audience a sign. Not this time. Interestingly, he had just given them a sign less than 24 hours prior when he turns a boy's sack lunch into a meal that feeds 5,000 plus. No, a sinner, if he's going to become a believer, doesn't need a sign like he thinks he needs. He needs to come to grips with the truth. This is Jesus' emphasis here. I tell you the truth, he says in verse 32. This is what a sinner needs. Truth, And this is why I commend what's happening in this church. You love truth. When you gather, it's about the truth. It's not just stirring up emotion, which is so short-lived. It's truth. Truth is what God uses to bring salvation. In this case, Jesus begins presenting truth to these sinners about Moses, about the Father, and about bread. He tells them in verses 32 and 33, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is what the sinner needs. It's not necessarily what he thinks he needs. Bottom line, he needs, says Jesus, the bread of God. What is the bread of God? The bread of God is not a thing, but a person. It's not a what, it's a who. The bread of God is the person who has come from heaven to give life to the world. Sir, from now on, give us this bread, said the crowd in verse 34. They're raising their hands, aren't they? They're ready 
to respond. They're ready to become followers of Jesus. But hold on, they're not ready. They're not even close to being ready. Their response is ill-informed and short-sighted. They may be raising their hands, but Jesus ignores their apparent interest and proceeds to give them a third dose of truth where he corrects the sinner's faulty response. And this is where we want to spend our time tonight. Before a sinner can respond rightly to God's offer, he needs to understand some things. And Jesus addresses six critical subjects that you need to understand, that I need to understand if we're interested in experiencing the life that God offers through his son. First of all, he needs to grasp who Jesus is. You can't believe in a person you don't know. Who is this person who's offering eternal life to the crowd in Capernaum? Notice verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. This is the first of seven I am statements recorded in John's gospel. Jesus will later announce, I am the light of the world, chapter 8, verse 12. I am the door of the sheep, chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. I am the good shepherd, chapter 10, verse 11. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11, verse 25. I am the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14, verse 6. I am the true vine, chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus Christ looks at these people who seem to be so interested in him, and he says the words, I am. This audience had just referred to Moses. They wanted Jesus to give them what Moses gave them, a lifetime supply of the physical stuff that makes life better. Jesus looks at them and says, that's not what you need. What you need is something far different from that, what you need most. And he takes them back to something Moses heard at the burning bush. Tell them, I am has sent you. You say you want bread from heaven. That's good. Let me tell you about bread. It's not a loaf, it's a person. It's the person that was speaking to Moses in that burning bush. I am that person. Jesus repeats this claim four times in this bread of life sermon. He'll say it again in verse 41. I am the bread that came down from heaven. In verse 48, I am the bread of life. In verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. What is Jesus saying? You know, honestly, we miss the point since bread for us isn't what it was for the first century Jew. For us, bread is just one of the, one of the layers on a, you know, food groups on a pyramid. You know, you need meat and dairy and fruit and vegetables. And then, oh yeah, you better have some bread in your diet. Bread is sort of a filler for us. And we're into the gluten-free and everything else that goes along with it. For us, bread is something that can go from the diet. If you plug that way of thinking about bread into this sermon, you'll miss the point for sure. Jesus is not some optional food group on the plate. This is an astounding claim. Every Jew in the audience got it as evidenced by the response in verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Why did they grumble? Because they knew what he was claiming and they couldn't believe it. He was claiming to be the source of life. I'm the bread of life. If you want life, you must come to me, says Jesus. The of life indicates this. He doesn't just make life better. 
He is life. He is the very source of life. He's the giver of life, and specifically of life that will never end. That's what he just told them back in verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. If you want eternal life, you must come to me, and I will give it to you. But he's not just the source of life. By this claim, he's saying, I'm the very staple of life. This is what bread was for the first century Jew. If you didn't have bread, you didn't have a meal. They ate it all the time. It was, it was what they needed for life. See, Jesus isn't the cake at the end of the meal. This is not his claim. He claims to be the bread, which means he's what you need. If you want to experience life itself, not just give life to you someday, but to experience life to the full now and forever. He's the source and staple of life. No wonder they grumbled. They said in verse 42, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? This is critical, my friend. When a person tells you they're ready to receive Jesus, make sure the person knows who Jesus really is. It's no good for this person. In fact, it does the person a ton of harm when a person receives the Jesus they want and not the Jesus who is. And churches are filled with these kind of people across the United States of America. The second subject that a responder needs to grasp, first, who Jesus is, what Jesus can do. Jesus makes it perfectly clear what he can do at the end of verse 35 when he says, He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Hear his claim as he talks about what he can do. He says he can satisfy. If you come to me, I will take away your hunger. If you believe in me, I will take away your thirst. Hunger, thirst. He's using two words that sum up human need, and he's saying, I can meet those needs. I can satisfy you. But not just satisfy, this indicates he can satisfy permanently. Notice, he who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. This is an incredible offer. Jesus says he can give a person eternal satisfaction. By the way, who benefits from this offer? The person who raises their hand? No. Jesus says a person must come and believe. Westcott, in his commentary, observes the first word presents faith in deed as outward and active, while the second word presents faith in thought as resting and inward. This is what a sinner must do. He must come to Jesus, which necessitates that he leaves where he was, that's repentance, and he must believe in Jesus. He believes that Jesus is who he claimed to be and accomplished what he said he accomplished, namely salvation for his soul through the sacrificial life, death, burial, and resurrection that he's accomplished. The person who comes and believes is the person who receives then this permanent satisfaction for his soul. We were just praying for some dear ones that are going through a difficult time. How in the world can you have permanent satisfaction when you're going through a great loss? It's because Jesus gives that to those who truly come to him and believe in him. Now Jesus gets really personal with his audience. He puts the spotlight on them in verse 36. 
But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. How's that for getting to the point? He, he's, he's moving now into the third subject that the responsive sinner must face, and that is he must face what he has failed to do. As I told you, says Jesus, he seems to be referring to what he told them in verse 26 when he challenged their motives. He told them, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. You don't believe in me. You just want to use me says Jesus. This is a deficient response, and I love you enough to tell you that. Jesus is such an amazing person. He loves, absolutely he loves, but he loves us enough to tell us what is true that we don't want to hear necessarily. This sounds similar to what happened back in chapter 5. Jesus was talking there to people in Jerusalem. Now he's talking to Galileans. He faced it wherever he ministered, down south, up north, People saw him. They liked his miracles. They were fascinated by his teachings, but they did not believe. This is the response that Jesus says is necessary. Nothing short will do. It is the work of God, says verse 29, to believe in the one he sent. Let me say that again. Believing is the work of God. When belief is genuine, it is something that God has produced in a person. Again, churches are filled with people that have a pseudo-belief, false type of faith that is not a saving faith, that is not the work of God in their lives, and therefore doesn't last. How does the Lord respond when people refuse to believe? Does he fret and agonize over what to do next? Does man's unbelief cause him to wonder what to do next? Absolutely not. Notice the very next words that come out of Jesus' lips. Right after confronting these apparent seekers and what they failed to do, he says in verse 36, you have seen me and still do not believe. And then verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. F.F. Bruce in his commentary says, men's blindness cannot frustrate the saving work of God. Let that sink in. Nothing frustrates God, including the refusal of sinners to receive his son. Jesus says that the Father has done something that guarantees that sinners will repent and believe in his son. And this brings us to subject number four that deficient responders need to grasp, and that is what the Father's doing. The Father and Jesus has a lot to say about this passage, about this, and throughout the gospel. The Father is doing something in the world. In this case, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Now, let's just be honest about this. This is such a shocking statement. This is an evangelistic context. Jesus is with unsaved people. And he begins to talk to them about his father's sovereign, gracious, electing love. You're not supposed to share deep theological truth when you evangelize non-Christians, are you? You're supposed to keep it simple. And by all means, stay away from controversial doctrinal issues like election and predestination. Those subjects don't belong in any evangelistic presentation. Therefore, the spiritually mature, some would say, if not optional, others would say, but certainly irrelevant for the non-Christian. To which Jesus says, no, 
Jesus does not shy away from the subject of God's sovereignty and salvation. He talks about it openly, and in this case, openly with non-believers. You don't believe in me, he told them, but all that the Father has given to me will come to me. When Jesus ministered to lost people, he talked, as I just said, a lot about his Father. This is sort of a, a little sidelight that's essential to understand what's going on here. Let me talk about seven things, seven actions that Jesus revealed, revealed about the Father. First of all, that the Father is seeking true worshipers. This takes us back into chapter 4 when Jesus is with a Samaritan woman. And he says to her, a time is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. These are the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. What's the Father doing? Jesus told this lost woman that he's seeking worshipers. This is why Jesus, of course, went to Samaria to meet this woman, to rescue her from her immoral past and give her new life and then turn her into a true worshiper. I was once meeting with a young man who came seeking help for personal problems. How'd you find us? I asked. I did a Google search, found your church, noticed you offer counseling. <laughs> I said, it's no coincidence that you're here now. God is at work in your life. Let's talk. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we got a call on a Thursday afternoon, I think it was, uh, from Best Care Convalescent Center there in Wheelersburg, and the activities director said, I've been calling church after church. I'm trying to get a pastor, and I can't get any pastor. A pastor that'll come. There's a lady that's dying here, and the family would like to have a pastor come. And uh, I said, I'll be right there. So I went out and um, walk up, never met these folks before. I meet the lady's husband out in the hallway, grandson standing there, introduce myself. They said, um, well, they've got the door shut. They're working with my wife. They're cleaning her up and so forth. So you'll, if you can wait a minute, we'll go in. That's fine. I'm standing there in the hallway, and I hear a man across the hallway in his bed, an older man, yelling, hey, I want to talk to you. <laughs> And I looked toward him. Me? Yeah, I want to talk to you. I walk in. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, later, as I got to know his name was David, I said, how old are you, David? He said, I'm 105. I don't think he was 105, but he was an old guy. He couldn't get out of bed. He was laying there. I said, well, what do you want to talk about? He said, I want to talk to you. And I said, do you mind if I read you some scripture? And I opened up the scriptures, and I read to him from God's word. And I uh, said, God sent his son into the world to give eternal life. I, I just sensed that the, from the look in his eye that he was under conviction. I, I didn't know, but so I read scripture. And I said, God sent his son to give eternal life to all who repent and believe in Christ. Are you interested? And he said, yeah. I said, have you ever received Jesus Christ as your savior? He said, no. I said, do you want to? He said, yeah. I said, hold on right now. I gotta go across the hall. The door's open right now. I'll be back. He says, please come back. So I went across the hall. I go into this room. There's this lady laying in bed, and uh, I didn't know if she was even responsive. So I, is she, yeah, she's responsive. The husband speaks to her. She opens her eyes, and he says, here's a pastor here to talk with you. I read from John 10 about the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep to this woman, and her eyes are lighting up. I mean, I could just tell she, she's, this is a believer. And uh, in fact, her 
husband, she, oh, he, she's, she's, she knows Jesus. She believes in Jesus. And I just encouraged her a little bit. And then I said to the husband, I said, well, what about you? He says, I don't go to church. And I said, well, that's fine, but that's not what we're talking about. Going to church isn't what saves someone. Going to church is what you do to find out about the person that provides salvation. And then I began to realize why well, I was really in that room. It wasn't about her. It was about him. And then, later in the conversation, the roommate of the lady who's dying comes up to me, and she says, as obvious, she was a believer in Christ, too. And she says, you know, I've been living here at Best Care for about, I don't know, I think she said eight or nine months. And she's, I said, hey, let me ask you this question then. David, across the hallway. Um, well, that, that was late in the conversation. Okay, so I said, hang on here. I went back to David before I had talked to the roommate. I'm going back over to David. I said, okay, he's... You said that you want to receive Christ as your Savior? He said, yeah. I said, okay, i tell you what. What I'll do, I'm going to pray, and then I want you to pray. So I prayed a short prayer, and then he started praying. And he went on and on, and he doesn't even close his eyes. He's looking up, and he's just calling, and his speech was not real clear. But what a, it was a heartfelt calling out to God. I don't even know what he was saying exactly, but he just went on and on and on. And um, finish that story before I go back to this one. So that was that day. I went back a few days later, and I went to see David, and I said, you remember me? He said, yeah, you're, that, you're the preacher. I said, yeah, I'm the preacher. I said, remember we, we, we talked about Christ the other day, and I said, you asked Christ to save you. He said, yeah, I'm trying to cuss less. <laughs> I'm trying to cuss less. I said, that's really good, David. So that first day, I go back across the hallway, and I meet the roommate, and I said, she's been here nine months. I said, what do you know about David? She said, I don't think he's, I said, he just opened up to me. He seems to be interested in coming to know Christ as his Savior. And she says, that would be wonderful. I don't think he's a Christian. And then she said this, this place is full of people that are not ready to leave this world, that don't know Jesus. Best care. People ready to leave this world, but not ready to leave this world. Jesus Christ is seeking, is seeking to bring people to himself, and he reveals to us that the Father is seeking true worshipers. I see it all the time. God is orchestrating things like that to bring people under the sound of his word. But he's not just seeking them. Jesus says the Father's done something that guarantees that those he is seeking will indeed be found. And what is that? He gave them to his son as a love gift. Verse 37 again, we're in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, in the Greek language, all is in the neuter singular form, which views those whom God gives to his son as a collective body, those chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So this is what the Father did. The Father gave his son a gift of people in eternity past. Jesus talks about this love gift all over the Gospel of John. For instance, he says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I give to them eternal life. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He referred to this love gift throughout his high priestly prayer in John 17, for instance, in John 17, 2, For you, Father, granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. 
Why did Jesus come into the world? To give eternal life. To whom? He says, to all that the Father has given him. Verse 6 in John 17, I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. In a very real sense, the gift of salvation is for the whole world. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, Jesus says at the end of verse 37. The offer is universal. But who will come? Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come at the beginning of that verse. This is incredible. This, what we're talking about is not a doctrine on a page in a theology textbook. What we're talking about is an intimately personal thing. In eternity past, God the Father chose to give a love gift to his Son, a people that would be for the praise of his Son forever and ever and ever in eternity future. This was his act of love to his Son. And since true love always reciprocates, the Son responded in love and said, What can I do to show my love for you, Father? And the Father said, I have designed this plan for you to accomplish. You are to go and to give your life to rescue this people. And the Father gives the plan to the Son, and the Son responds and says, I love you so much, Father, I'll be glad to do that. Is that how the conversation went? I don't know if that's exactly how it went, but that was at the heart of it. The Father gave a gift to his Son. The Father knows who the love gift is. And for this he deserves thanks, says 2 Thessalonians 2.13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers loved by the Lord because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. This love gift is at the heart of what makes evangelism possible. Now, back in John's gospel, Jesus reveals something else about his father. Not only to give his son a people, but thirdly, he gave his son a work to do. This is what Jesus said in John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then he elaborates in John 5, verse 36, for the very work that the father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. What is this work that Jesus is talking about? In short, the work the Father gave him is to rescue the people he's given him and turn them into true worshipers. This is why Jesus came. God the Father, number four, sent his Son into the world to do that work. A word we see again and again in John 5 and John 6 is the word sent. Jesus says, for instance, in John 5, 23, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. John 5, 30, I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. Verse 36 testifies that the Father sent me. The son is in perfect obedience to his father, and the father sends him into the world to do a work. You put all this together, and what do we see? Jesus says that in eternity past, the father gave his son a gift of people, a people who will worship him forever and ever. 
But how in the world will a sinner ever become a worshiper? A sinner can't change himself. That's your work, says the Father to the Son. That's why I'm sending you into the world to accomplish that work. And so he did. The Father sent his Son into the world to do that work, and his Son would not be detoured from it. It's why when the crowd wanted to make him king, Jesus left them. He did not come to give sinners what they think they need. He came to save a people. This is why he went to the cross, where he dies for those undeserving, helpless, hell-bound people. The Father does something else. Number five, he placed his seal of approval on his son. This is what Jesus told the crowd in verse 27. He didn't live to please the crowd. He lived to please his father, whose approval was already his. This is my beloved son, said the father at his son's baptism. With him I am well pleased. And yet there's more, says Jesus. Not only is my father seeking true worshipers, not only is he given a people to his son and his son a work in order to rescue these people, but here's, this is all the backdrop for why I'm here tonight, to talk to you about the Father's sovereign electing love. The Father is drawing people to his Son. Listen to Jesus now in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What is the Father doing right now? The Father is drawing people to his Son. Well, can't they come to Jesus on their own? No. No, they can't. As Jesus himself emphasized in John 6, 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Please notice that in the work of salvation, God the Father and God the Son are on the same page. The Father chose a people and gave them to his Son. The Son came to rescue those people. The Father's now drawing those people to his Son. And one more thing, number seven, the Father's giving his people a guarantee. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. This is a guarantee. There will not be one lost sheep for whom the shepherd gave his life that doesn't make his way home to the fold. If the Father has given them to me, says Jesus, they are coming home. And whoever comes to me, says the Son, I will never drive away. This is a guarantee. How could the Son ever drive away a gift from his Father? Impossible. They are secure in his care. F.F. Bruce in his commentary explains, and when they come, they find that Christ undertakes the entire responsibility for their full and final salvation. He does not turn them away when they come, nor does he subsequently disown them. Some of you tonight need that reminder. If you are in Christ, you're in Christ because the Father loved you from eternity past. And the Father gave you to His Son, and the Son died for you, and the Father has drawn you to Him. And so you're going through challenging times right now, but lift your eyes and see the incredible love that the Father and the Son have for you. And of course, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is even beyond the scope of what we're talking about, but He too loves you. 
He's the one who's applied this salvation to your benefit. Now, I recognize this may be new to you. So let me give you some words, some texts, and a story. First, some words. Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and Arminianism. These are theological systems that say that God's salvation is dependent upon man's will. Yes, God made make salvation possible, but only man can make it a reality. God's hands are tied. Man's in the driver's seat. Now, if you believe that, it will, it will affect your methodology of how you do evangelism. Um, I mean, this is reality. I, it's amazing to me to see how what we're talking about tonight uh, is even being talked about. When I when I first came to the church in 1987, there was a book on my shelf that had been left there by previous pastors, apparently, and it was entitled Against the Five Points of Calvinism. <laughs> you didn't even talk about this subject in this area when we first came here. I mean, it was just like, it's controversial, it's divisive, you don't think about that. When I see how God's raised up Younger pastors particularly, it seems, that have a heart for the, the, what the whole counsel of God's word teaches, it's a great encouragement to me. Uh, by the way, whenever God says something in his word, it's good, right? If God talks about something in his word, it's good. Paul says he came and he preached the whole counsel of his word wherever he went. So it's a good thing to talk about anything that God reveals in his word. And in this case, we're talking about this wonderful truth about his electing love to save a people. Um, but what you believe about salvation affects your methodology. And I remember when I first came to the church, someone came up to me and said, now, at the end of the service, here are the songs that you need to use to prime the pump to get people to respond to the message. <laughs> that was the language, prime the pump. You may have come out of backgrounds where you saw that happen, you know, so... You would preach a message, and then you would depend on the right kind of music to prime the pump to get people to respond, as if what we've been talking about isn't sufficient, as if the father drawing people to his son is insufficient, that we need to manufacture an emotional response to get people to come to Jesus. I found out really quickly that you can pry on the pump all you want, and you might get people to raise their hand and pray prayers, but they don't truly come to know Christ. They profess, but they don't possess Christ. Until the Spirit of God draws a person to Christ, it will not last. But the beautiful thing is, and here's where I've given you some terms, let me give you now some texts. The Bible's filled with this wonderful teaching, and if this is new to you, you'll want to check these out. Again, you can go to the website and look at these passages that I give you quickly here. Jonah 2.9, salvation comes from the Lord. Matthew 22.14, many are invited, but few are chosen. Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Notice the order. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. 
and those he justified he also glorified. Ephesians 1.4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his son. 2 Timothy 2.10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. 1 Peter 2.9, but you're a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And we could go on. The text of the scriptures affirming again and again that God has chosen a people that he will bring to his son who will place their faith in him and be saved. But terms and texts can make God's grace seem so academic. So let me tell you a story. Perhaps you've heard of George Mueller, great man of God in Bristol, England, back in the 1800s, who built orphanage. How many of you have heard of George Mueller? He, he, wonderful man God used to care for 10,000 orphans, man of great faith, raised millions of dollars without asking anybody but God for funds. But what you may not know, and I didn't until I read his biography, George Mueller of Bristol by Arthur T. Pearson, is how wicked this man was prior to his conversion. As a teenager, George Mueller was a liar, a gambler, a drunkard, a thief. He actually stole money again and again from his own father. He rang up a huge bill once by staying in a plush hotel, left town before paying, went to another hotel in another town. When he tried to run from the second bill, they caught him and they threw him in jail. This was how he lived his first 20 years of life. He was a slave to his self-centered passions, a disgrace to his family, and he was an enemy of God. And then, November 1825, the Lord saved him. Let me let Mueller's biographer tell the story. After a score of years of evil doing, George Mueller was converted to God, and the radical nature of the change strikingly proves and displays the sovereignty of Almighty Grace. He had been kept amid scenes of outrageous and flagrant sin and brought through many perils as well as two serious illnesses because divine purposes of mercy were to be fulfilled in him. No other explanation can adequately account for the facts. Let those who would explain such a conversion without taking God into account remember that it was at a time when this young sinner was as careless as ever, when he had not for years read the Bible or had a copy of it in his possession, when he had seldom gone to a service of worship and had never even heard one gospel sermon, when he had never been told by any believer what it is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to live by God's help and according to his word, when, in fact, he had no conception of the first principles of the doctrine of Christ and knew not the na real nature of a holy life, but thought all others as himself, except in the degree of depravity and iniquity. This young man had thus grown to manhood without having learned the, that rudimental truth that sinners and saints differ not in degree but in kind, that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Yet the hard heart of such a man, at such a time and in such conditions, 
was so wrought upon by the Holy Spirit that he suddenly found entrance into a new sphere of life with new adaptations to his new atmosphere. Now that's when it happened. Mueller wasn't searching for God, but God was searching for him. And on a Saturday afternoon, Mueller and a friend named Beta were out taking a walk when Beta, who himself wasn't even a believer, invited him to go to a meeting at a Christian's house. Mueller felt, as you can imagine, out of place. But someone told him, come as often as you please. House and heart are open to you. Once inside, he watched in amazement as a man got on his knees to pray. Quote, this kneeling made a deep impression on me, for I had never either seen anyone on his knees, nor had I ever prayed myself on my knees, end of quote. Then the leader in this little meeting read a chapter from the Bible, read a printed sermon since it was illegal for a non-ordained man to preach extemporaneously. The meeting closed with a hymn and another time of prayer. That was it. Nothing flashy, nothing sensational, nothing initiated by Mueller, no priming of the pump with a song at the end. <laughs> Yet when Mueller went home that night, he was a new man. I was happy, says Mueller, though if I had been asked why I was happy, I could not have clearly explained it, end of quote. How did it happen? <laughs> Here's how it happened. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Jesus says there's a couple of other subjects that the sinner must contemplate. I just mentioned them to you because this rounds out this text we're looking at. He says that, he needs to grasp what Jesus came to do. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me. There it is again. Jesus says he came to do the Father's will and to rescue the Father's gift. And then... He says that the sinner needs to grasp what the Father's will is. Verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You say, I don't understand this election. Do I need to understand election in order to be saved? No, you don't need to understand election. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You call upon Jesus Christ putting your trust in what he accomplished at the cross in that empty tomb. And God saves you and gives you eternal life. A lot of people talk about heaven as if it's the goal of salvation. Jesus in the verse I just read indicates heaven is just a temporary dwelling place for the believer's soul. Wonderful, yes, but temporary. For the believer, something better than heaven is coming. I will raise him up at the last day, says Jesus. So how should we respond to this tonight? In the time, I, I, I'm told that your pastor preaches long sermons. I realize, I apologize, I preach so longer than I intended on preaching, so I'm, I want to wrap this up. But I want to wrap it up by calling us to some action. I want, you to, I want to challenge us to do four things. How should this affect us? Number one, we should praise. Why did Jesus tell non-believers all this amazing truth about the Father's gift 
and the Father's guarantee to draw sinners to his Son. It's so that when he does, we respond by praising him. I want you to think about that. I hope you talk about salvation. That's your salvation and others too in a way that magnifies the Savior and not the sinner. Talk about what God has done in your life by putting the spotlight on God. First of all, we should praise. Secondly, we should preach. It is through the preaching of his word that the sovereign Lord has chosen to bring sinners to himself. I don't know whom he's chosen. I don't need to know. It's my assignment. It's your assignment to preach. He will bring them home. You tell everybody about Jesus. Find ways to get the word out, and he will draw them to himself. We should praise. We should preach. Thirdly, we should pray. I can't touch a sinner's heart. I can't remove blinders. I can't produce conviction. I can't generate saving faith. But he can, and he does. Let's ask him to do so. We, we're praying, we prayed as a church this morning in our community groups that are happening throughout the day that God would open up the eyes of people and bring them to his son. We should praise, preach, pray, and fourthly, persevere. Don't let a sinner's resistance today keep you from preaching and praying for his salvation again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Some of you have unsaved loved ones. Keep preaching, praying, calling upon them, loving them in spite of how they reject you. Because the crowd that rejected Jesus on this day, and many did, many walk away at the end of John chapter 6. Many will eventually be crying out for his crucifixion. In God's time, do come to believe in him. So while we praise and preach and pray, let us all persevere. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray. We thank you so much, Father, for your amazing plan in eternity past. We praise you, O great Son of God, for your obedience to the Father and the work that you've accomplished for our salvation. Glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.